Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is looking back at the Final Four and the National Championship, as well as looking back at the 2021 NCAA basketball season. So let's start with the first Final Four matchup between Baylor and Houston. Jalen, what are your thoughts on the matchup? Man, honestly, this game was gross. I'm going to be honest. Like, this this was a game that was never closed. This was a game that was unnecessarily out of hand by halftime. I mean, the biggest thing that stands out to me is the fact that had Marcus Sasser not had, like, what, 17 points in the first half, this game could have been, like, even more. This could have been Globetrotters-esque. <laughs> and, look, in terms of – Houston, I don't want to. I don't want to put them in the Washington Generals area. But look, man, let's put it like this: Marcus Sasser and Quentin Grimes combined for thirty-three points. Not a single player on the team outside of those two cracked double digits. Uh, Dejon Giroux, who was supposed to be their quote-unquote big defensive stopper in this game. Didn't do very much defensively and didn't even crack 10 points. He had six points on the night. Reggie Chaney had six points as well. This was a game that was just not very good on Houston's part. I'm going to let Ryan do more of the talking in relation to Houston because he had them upsetting Baylor. I would just simply say this. When looking at this game overall, I definitely thought that from an offensive standpoint, Baylor just simply came out and showed that they were the more physical team. I think this also was one of those things where they just show that defensively they lock up in a way that creates so much in terms of like, you know, running the floor. They have so many athletes. I mean, it's just so, so interesting to see how hard these guys play. And this was arguably Jared Butler's best game of the tourney. I mean, granted, I think what he did against Gonzaga, we'll talk about that a little bit later, was definitely rising to the occasion at its max. But Jared Butler was 17-4-2. Davion Mitchell, smooth uh, smooth double-double, 12 and 11 assists. I I mean, he took six three-pointers in this this game. He hit three of them. Baylor was just unstoppable offensively and defensively. There was just no messing with him, Ryan. It was (laughs) unnecessary overkill. I owe an apology to Baylor basketball. (laughs) On the last episode, I made some very outrageous takes. I mentioned that the trio of Davion Mitchell, Masio Teague, and Jared Butler would combine for 30 points. And I had mentioned that even though Baylor had the sixth best scoring offense in the country, Baylor as a team would score anywhere from 60 points to 65 points. Well, for starters, Baylor scored 78 points and took it to Houston throughout the game. Houston was the second best scoring defense in the country and one of the best three-point shooting defenses in the country. But if anything, Baylor got off to a strong start and they never let go of the lead. They were up 45 to 20 at the half and were shooting efficiently as a team from the field and from three. Jared Butler had all 17 of his points in the first half. And speaking of Jared Butler... Butler, Teague, and Mitchell scored 40 combined points. Matt Meyer also added 12 points coming off the bench, and Jonathan Chenwa Chichua scored 11 coming off the bench. Baylor played some strong defense throughout the game, and they kept up the pressure until the final whistle. And because of that, 
Houston was struggling from the field and from three. Marcus Sasser, you mentioned he was really the only guy creating scoring for them. He had 20 points, 17 of them in the first half, 7 of 14 shooting from the field, and he ended up making five threes in that game as well. You mentioned Quentin Grimes struggled. He shot four of 12 from the field, one of eight from three. Dijon Giroux also struggled, three of 10 shooting from the field, 0 of two from three. Houston had a great season this year, but I severely underestimated how good of a team Baylor was this year. And for that, Baylor fans, Baylor basketball, I was I mean, wrong. I mean, hey, look, <clears throat> the biggest thing was that you you were looking mainly on the fact that Houston as a team defense is one of the top ones in the nation. I mean, it was one of those things that you just felt like, considering the circumstances, Baylor was running into a very high-level defensive team that also had a guy in Quentin Grimes that could really run the show at the point guard spot. And I think the main thing that you were maybe relying on was for A, Jero to step up significantly on the defensive end, and B, for Quentin Grimes to go toe-to-toe with a guy like Jared Butler. And for all intents and purposes, he really didn't. He lost in all categories. I mean, I guess you could say that he showed up pretty big with two steals and a block in comparison to uh, Jared Butler, who only had two steals. But, I mean, other than that, I mean, on the defensive end, I, I, you could say maybe they played relatively even, but – Jared Butler shot better from three at 17 as opposed to um, Quentin Grimes' is, um, is, uh, 13. It was just overall the point guard matchup was going to be the most important thing, right? And obviously the other thing about it is Davion Mitchell went off 11 assists in the game, showed his overall versatility as a guy at the point guard spot who can facilitate while also being really physical. Didn't shoot the three very well in this game, which is one of those things. We'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about Davion Mitchell's draft stock because um, he's a guy that actually today declared for the draft um, earlier on today when we're recording this, um, April 7th. So with that being the case, that's something that's going to be really interesting to pull away from his overall tournament performance. But I just think that Baylor was just unnecessarily overmatching this Houston team. And I think it's interesting because, Ryan, what I kind of want to flip to you before we move on to the, uh, the the better game of the Final Four is when we look at Houston, right, in their run, they have no control over who they run into, right? But do you think that Houston may have been or maybe you overestimated Houston not only from a defensive perspective, but the fact that they were putting, putting foots on double-digit seeds? Now, again, they don't control who they get to face, but – they showed out and played at a really high level against low-level seeds, but we have to remember that this was – this was – I think this – I want to say this was Houston – this matchup against Baylor was Houston's only or second-ranked opponent they faced all year, I want to say, um, or something of that ilk. So – I mean, before the tournament, of course. So that kind of makes me wonder, like – how do you feel about them in terms of coming into that game? Do you feel like maybe you overestimated them because of what they had done so far in the tournament with some pretty convincing wins? Do you think it was really all the defense that you were leaning on? How did you feel about – what are your final thoughts on Houston considering their season was ended very uh, abruptly? I don't think I overestimated them. I knew how talented of a team that they were going into the NCAA tournament, the fact that they were – one of the best defensive teams in the country, second in scoring defense. I think they're in the top 10 in terms of three-point shooting defense. I think both of those things were or would be very useful to the NCAA tournament considering that 
the three-point shot is vital in this tournament. I think Houston was going to be a team that I thought against Baylor would have prevented them from making as many threes as they did. And I think struggle also not only shooting from the field, but shooting from three. When I made the take that Mitchell, Teague, and Butler would combine for 30 points, I figured if we put Houston's defense up against Baylor's offense, I think Houston's defense would win the matchup. And unfortunately, they did not. Houston was outmatched in that game from start to finish. I think that Baylor's offense dismantled Houston's defense. Yeah, I think the biggest thing with Houston, right, moving forward for them, it's just going to be very interesting to see where they pick up, right? Uh, Quinn Grimes is a guy who's probably going to declare for the draft. He's a guy who's probably going to be somewhere between 45 and 60, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of his draft stock. Going to be really interesting to see what he decides to do. I think Houston had a really, really good season. Um, I did go back and look at it. The only team that they really faced um, – in the ranked category all year was when they took on Texas Tech very early on in the season. Um, other than that, it's been a lot of Tulsa temples, two lanes. Um, I mean, towards the back end, obviously they caught teams like Memphis, Cincinnati, uh, Memphis, who ended up winning the NIT, Cincinnati, um, obviously taking down Syracuse was huge in the tournament as well. Um, and Oregon State was the, the was the giant killer that took down Kate Cunningham and the two uh, the two guys Keon Johnson and Jane Springer out of uh, Tennessee as well. So beating them was also huge. But coming into the tournament, they hadn't really faced very much adversity in terms of ranked opponents. Baylor <laughs> Baylor's more than a ranked opponent, as we know. This this team is legit. Um, I guess we can move on over to the the better game <laughs> of the Final Four now. When we're talking about this next game, UCLA and Gonzaga, one of the best Final Four games of all time. Jalen, I want to start with you, not only to ask if this was one of the best Final Four games of all time, but just to get your overall thoughts on this matchup. I mean, Ryan, this was a game that you had me pretty posted on the entire time, right? I was at work, so I was, like, trying my hardest to, like, pay attention, but I was stuck in box score mode. Like, I wasn't really able to watch the game physically initially I definitely I went back and watched the game highlight wise and I actually found the full tape and actually rewatched that more recently man it's just like the final sequence of events is what made that game so huge obviously the big charge taken by Drew Timmy that was one of the bigger things in regulation that was huge in terms of being able to extend that game out nothing will top the last overall exchange between these two teams Johnny Juzang, big drive in, inside, inside spin, turnaround jumper, misses it off the front iron, instantly attacks the rim, gets his own miss, throws it back up, follows up by an inbound to Jalen Suggs. The ball was not stopped. I do need to throw that out there. UCLA was trotting back, or even you can say sprinting back. They were running back on defense hard. But nobody came to stop Jalen Suggs on the ball. He got about two good dribbles into half court. And it was as pure of a shot as it could be. And I think, Ryan, you made this um, clear to me. That was our only buzzer beater of the entire NCAA tournament. I think that makes things special all in itself because of the mere fact that those are kind of the, the moments outside of the upsets themselves that typically make March Madness 
what it is. You know what I mean? Because you're talking about literally ripping the heart of a team out. Not only is that a last second shot to win the game, that's the shot that will end a team season. You know what I mean? So that entire final sequence was just top tier. Um, unfortunately, it's crazy though, because obviously we'll end up talking about the championship game because of the mere fact that, you know, Gonzaga was not able to finish the job. But even sooner than that, I think it's crazy that Joel Ayayi, man, he was really the player in this game and he gets lost in the fray of all this because of that one shot. And you could argue Drew Timmy's um, charge um, taken is even more of a bigger story or has been more of a bigger story than Joel Ayayi. Ryan, we can play this back. I said on the pod coming into that, that it seemed like Joel Ayayi was due for a game. I felt like it was about that time. He was one of the only guys who hadn't really done very much. Um, Corey Kisper was a guy who's consistently been getting between 15 and 18 points all tournament. Hasn't been really shooting very well from three. Um, hasn't been very aggressive shooting the ball at all. That's something we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. Uh, wasn't very aggressive at all shooting throughout the tournament. Joel Yayi, on the other hand, was the biggest reason why this game was even as close as it was. 22 points, six rebounds, two assists, two steals. And he was he was playing like a madman the entire game. So it sucks that he's kind of lost in the fray of the fact that, you know, Jalen Suggs and Drew Timmy combined for, you know, 41 points on the night. Jalen Suggs hits the biggest shot of his life so far. Drew Timmy makes one of the biggest defensive plays of the season. Um, yeah. Great finish. Great finish. Yeah, I think that this game was one of the best Final Four games of all time. And I had mentioned it to you. I think it was the first buzzer-beating game winner in the NCAA tournament. We, we saw a couple of buzzer beaters throughout the tournament. But this was the first game-winning buzzer beater. And it came at the most opportune time. I think the thing that benefited UCLA early on was that they were shooting the ball early and often. This was something that... Oklahoma and Creighton tried to do, but they struggled to make shots against Gonzaga, allowing them to capitalize early in the game and never let go of the lead. UCLA was making a lot of these shots, and this was the team that was putting the most pressure on Gonzaga to match what they were doing offensively. And this was because of players like Johnny Juzang, who has been phenomenal for the entire tournament. He had 29 points. Jamie Jaquez Jr. also had 19 points. Tiger Campbell added 17 points. Not to mention Gonzaga struggled shooting from three as a team. They shot 33% from three compared to 43 or compared to 47% from three for UCLA. But before I talk about the shot by Jalen Suggs, I want to go back to when the game's tied to 81 for what was maybe the most crucial play of the game. And Jalen, the most crucial play of the game. And Jalen, you talked about it. Giant Juzang drives to the rim, meets Drew Timmy, who has four fouls. Timmy gets his feet planted, and Juzang gets called for the charge. Gonzaga gets the ball back with just over a second to go in regulation. Now, you harped on why this play was important, but I want to I want to talk about it a little bit more. If Timmy gets called for the foul, Timmy fouls out, and mm-hmm. Juzang would go to the line in all likelihood to win the game for UCLA the game probably would not have gone to overtime if Juzang makes the free throws 
and it would have been over for Gonzaga in regulation. And even if Gonzaga gets to overtime, they would not have had one of their best players in Drew Timmy for the overtime period. And speaking of Drew Timmy, I want to talk a little bit about this matchup between him and Cody Riley for UCLA, because this was a matchup that I spotlighted on in the last episode. This was a very even matchup. Neither player really got the upper hand, and both of them had great games. Cody Riley had a double-double, 14 points, 10 rebounds on 7 of 14 shooting from the field. Drew Timmy had 25 points, 4 rebounds, 2 assists on 11 of 15 shooting from the field. But now we have to talk about Jalen Suggs. This was the game that we were waiting for him to have, and it came at the best time. 16 points, 5 rebounds, 6 assists, two steals on six of 12 shooting from the field, two of five shooting from three. This game and the championship game that we're going to talk about later have made this conversation for the number one overall pick much more interesting. And I think that the number one pick might not be as much of a lock as we expect it to be with Kate Cunningham being the surefire number one overall pick. I think Jalen Suggs has made a contentious argument to be a number one overall pick. But I think if anything, his draft stock rises from top five to top three. So I kind of want to just kind of send it back to you in response to that by saying, what do you think without relying too much on the shot, without relying too much on even the circumstances of the Baylor game where I think he played very well, but a lot of it was garbage time minutes uh, or garbage time scoring. What about this tournament in general makes you believe that this conversation is as close as it is or that it improves his stock? Is it because we've seen just more of him than Cade? Is it because of the run? Is it because of his actual individual translation to the NBA? Because at the end of the day, we have to, I mean, I've heard this a lot from, from draft evaluators in terms of either talking to them via Twitter or Instagram, or even in situations, listening to podcasts where a lot of guys just were tired of watching Cade on this Oklahoma state team, because a lot of the criticism was coming from things that he did. He was quote unquote, not able to do or not showing off. But the reality was that he was playing within the construct of his team's not only values, but their overall ability. This was a team that was not a great three-point shooting team overall. This was a team that pretty much was in a situation where not really any other player on their team could create for themselves. Cade was creating a lot for for others, not even just on the ball, but off the ball as well in terms of the gravity that he commands. So. When you look at a lot of the things that Kate has done, I feel like his season was a little tainted by the fact that he didn't have the personnel next to him to really maximize or show off his full talents to its greatest height. So again, with all of that taken into consideration, not trying to beat the Cade Cunningham drum, but we have to understand that Cade Cunningham has been the number one overall pick since the year started. So to move him off the high horse is kind of like a, a very big claim. So what do you, what what do you what did you see that you feel like makes it where Jalen Suggs as the number one overall pick is an actual conversation worth having? So I think it's a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. I think he is in that conversation because of the fact that we've seen him a lot more than Cade, and I also feel like 
we were able to see what he was able to do against some of the best competition in the country, you know, against Creighton, against Oklahoma, against UCLA, against Baylor. He had some of his best games against some of the top teams in the country. I think what we've seen was flashes of superstar potential. And I think that, you know, it really kind of showed us early on why Jalen Suggs was one of the best players in the country. So I think his goal was to elevate his stock even more to ensure that he is a top three pick. I think this tournament proved that he is a top three pick. And I think that he has the potential to be the number one overall pick, but he also has that superstar potential to make him one of the best players in the NBA almost instantly. I definitely think that you have some interesting points in terms of overall his translation. And I do think that, you know, post NCAA tournament, there's been a lot of rise in terms of his overall draft stock, but he is still a very polarizing player because a lot of people are not trying to take this NCAA run at face value. Now, I'm going to kind of read out a couple of things that might be able to help it put into perspective, and that's more so teams, big boards post NCAA draft. So, for example, Bleacher Report, one of the more reliable websites in terms of these kind of uh, conversations, has Jalen Suggs two behind K Cunningham, but above guys like Evan Mobley, Jalen Green, and Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, who were easily above him, you know, for most of the year. Um, but then if you go to a team, if you go to a website like Tankathon, which is a little bit more rangy, um, their big board actually has Jalen Suggs at number one, and Cade Cunningham is third on that list. Significantly different in that regard. Look at a different website like ESPN. That's the, the big go-to nowadays. They have Jalen Suggs at number five still. So this is one of those very polarizing things where it's going to take a little bit of time to really look into the film and really break down his overall translation. I think he has a lot of things that click really well in terms of the fact that he plays really hard. Um, he can defend at a really strong level against ones and twos, which is something that um, is really going to be necessary at the next level with all the great guards that are out there. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where he lands at. And, um, you know, obviously we still need to talk about the actual championship game where he didn't maybe have his best game despite what the numbers will tell you. But I do think that there's a lot of things from an effort standpoint that we saw in that game that should give people something to work with and maybe a little bit more confidence in him as a player that's going to come in work really hard on his game. Um, he already is extremely athletic, can make a lot of the high-level reads and things like that. There's a lot of translate, translatable value out of uh, Jalen Suggs. So it's just going to be interesting to see how things go. I want to see this man at the combine. I think that's going to be where things get really fun. And I think when we're talking about you know potential and where he can go in terms of the draft, I mean, I think the tournament really solidified his place as a top-five pick. If he falls out of the top five, I think it would be the biggest surprise in the NBA draft. But moving on to the national championship, and this was a very different story for Gonzaga. It seemed like a very similar story for Baylor in terms of what they did against Houston. Jalen, what are your thoughts? First off, just overall shock, man. This game started out, what, I think it was 11-1 to 1 when the game first kind of shot off. Um, I think the other thing with this game, man, is that um, 
I think it was like Brendan Haywood or someone like that on on Twitter that said something to the equivalent of like Gonzaga looked like an AAU team that had never played a hood team before. <laughs> and like I just thought that was extremely hilarious because it's like, yo, this Baylor team really is full of goons. Like they they are really full of just straight up goons. Jared Butler had his, his best game statistically of the entire tournament um zero turnovers in the uh, at the beat of the drum of having 22 points and seven assists um i think the bigger thing for him was the fact that he was four of nine from three which is like extremely impressive on his part davion mitchell again with a really great overall one-on-one performance um against jalen suggs he was in a situation where he pretty much was the primary defender on them there was a lot of switching taking taking place but mitchell got a lot of that one-on-one action and on the offensive end he was giving it back 15 points five assists six rebounds i mean he got a steal and a block this was big in this game i think the one guy who gets lost in the fray and all this ryan we did not talk about him very much um two guys really in particular Masio Teague, man, 19 points in this game, and he didn't have any assists. He only had two rebounds. But look, the dude knows how to put the ball in the basket. He went 6-12 of 12 from 2, 8-15 of all, all, overall from the floor. I mean, the guy, was, the guy was pretty much hooping. And the other guy who gets lost in the fray and all of this is Mr. Effort himself, Mark Vidal. Jesus lord like the dude just plays with so much energy you know what i mean two steals one block the six points will fool you i mean the dude had 11 rebounds but you have to realize eight of them were on the offensive glass like this like that's just effort bro eight offensive rebounds is just effort you know you know even more that it's effort because he's a six five forward for them he's not even one of the i mean He's in one of those situations where he is playing as one of their taller guys, but Flo Thomba, who starts for them, had three points and six rebounds total in this game. I mean, let's just, just go ahead to tell you that this guy, I mean, he's, he's built like a WWE superstar out here, and he plays so dang hard. I mean, this team, I mean, this team overall, we both picked Gonzaga to win this game going into it. I think we both slept walked on this team offensively. I think one of the bigger things that you noted was that you said that you thought this was going to be an 80, 80 something type of game. They were going to have to go into the eighties. It was going to be a big boy shootout holding Gonzaga to 70 points. I think was probably the biggest story of the night overall. When you talk about what Baylor did on the defensive end, as opposed to what they did offensively. It's simple. Jalen Baylor was the better team on this day they got off to a strong start much like the game against houston they were up nine nothing they never really looked back baylor carried over most of the things that they succeeded in doing in defeating houston to defeat gonzaga such as the defensive pressure and their ability to outscore the opposition early in the game they played tight defense and gonzaga was struggling to get off shots early in the game and baylor's defense held the number one scoring offense in the country to 70 points, much like you said earlier. And much like their game against UCLA, Gonzaga struggled from three, 29% from three um, shooting against Baylor, while Baylor shot 43.5% from three. 
And they forced Gonzaga to make mistakes and they turned the ball over a lot in this game. Gonzaga had 14 turnovers and early on Gonzaga didn't look like themselves. But now the one thing I'll say is that the one thing that was working for them throughout this game was Jalen Suggs because he had 22 points. Um, Timmy had 12 points on five of seven shooting from the field. Corey Kispert struggled and he had 12 points, but he two of seven from three. Nemhard also had nine points. Ayayi had eight. They combined 0 for 4 from 3. But enough about Baylor's defense because Baylor's defense was phenomenal, not only throughout this tournament, but against, but against the number one scoring offense in the country. Let's talk about their offense because their presence on the offensive glass was, was very much, was very much present. It, it was felt early. Baylor out-rebounds Gonzaga 38-22. They grab 16 offensive rebounds compared to Gonzaga's five. Mark Vidal had 11 rebounds alone, and he had half of the team's offensive rebounds. I mean, we talk about Davion Mitchell, Masio T, Jared Butler, Adam Flagler, Matt Meyer. We don't talk enough about Mark Vidal, who was vital to this team's victory against Gonzaga. So congratulations to Baylor. I'm interested to see where Gonzaga goes from here because of the possibility that they lose Jalen Suggs, Corey Kisper, and Drew Timmy in the draft. I think that this is this is a year where Gonzaga should not feel disappointed. I think that they're in a really interesting position. I think Drew Timmy is a guy who might end up coming back, actually, um, just because he has a good handful of things that he needs to improve. So I think another year with Gonzaga would be huge for him. Now, I do think that gets kind of interesting Interesting with the fact that Chet Holgram is a guy who's supposed to um, potentially be on the move to a school like that. Um, obviously, uh, Walker Kessler from North Carolina has Gonzaga part of his top four in terms of him being in the transfer portal. So it'll be kind of interesting what the big man rotation will be like and if Drew Timmy is okay with being in that circumstance where it might be a more big, heavy team um we've seen him in a circumstance where he was behind guys like Killian Tilly and he didn't get nearly the same kind of burn um questions as to whether or not that would be the same circumstances with a with an NBA guy like Chet Holgram potentially waiting in the works so that's interesting um I think Baylor is in another interesting situation in terms of running it back as well because I mean one of the one of the things that you had mentioned was some of the other guys that they have on in the works for them. Like we know that Davion Mitchell is a guy who's rising up draft boards. We know that Jared Butler has been a point guard that's been floating anywhere between 25 and 30, maybe a little bit earlier, depending on how you view him as a playmaker. But Adam Flagler had a very, very good freshman season um, for, for Baylor. And then you have to throw in Matthew Mayer, Matthew Mayer. He, he showed me some things at six, nine, nearly 230 pounds. A little bit of athleticism, a smidge inconsistent. When when Matthew Myers on, man, he gives you some games. But when he's off, it looks very, you know, uncontrolled and it looks very unpolished. And it's one of those things that makes you wonder kind of what his translation to the next level could be. But I do see him as a guy that if he comes back to school with the offense being a lot more leaning on guys like Flagler and, and Meyer himself, they could be in a position to be able to run it back with a team that might even be a little bit more interesting from a playmaking standpoint with those two guys who 
showed a lot of flash coming off the bench for this Baylor team. So I think both teams have a lot of upside to walk away from. Obviously, Baylor is the one that ends in the all uh, that that walks away in the end with their chest out the most. But I think both of these teams have a significant chance to be able to get back in this position. And it's going to be really interesting to see what they both to what both teams do from a program standpoint, because. I mean, these are two premier programs in the entire NCAA in terms of the sport of basketball. Yeah, and I think the one thing that you mentioned, too, was the draft stock, the possibility of Drew Timmy going into the NBA draft, possibility of him going back to school, and Flagler's name is in there, too. Jared Butler, he ranges around the 25th to 30th overall pick in the first round. Let's talk about two guys in particular from Gonzaga and Baylor. Let's first start with Donovan Mitchell, or uh, not Donovan Mitchell. Let's start with Davion Mitchell. And I just have to ask Jalen, does his, does his stock rise or does his stock fall? Let me tell you this right now. The fact that you slipped his name up with it being Donovan Mitchell should tell you his stock is rising, right? <laughs> that's That's been the comparison over the last couple of weeks too, which is really interesting because – there's a lot of things that are that channel the same. You know, Donovan obviously has a completely different bounce. I also think that from an offensive standpoint, Donovan just has a lot more in his in his toolbox and his bag. But the fact that Davion brings so much defensively at his position is one of those things that kind of plays more in his favor. See, Davion doesn't have the scoring ability threat-wise that Donovan does but he has a lot of the playmaking ability as a true point guard, something that Donovan coming out of Louisville was not and still hasn't necessarily turned into in Utah. That's why guys like um, Ricky Rubio once upon a time or even Mike Conley now have been guys who have been very important in terms of running the show and creating stuff offensively for a guy like Donovan Mitchell, who is a guy who can create his own shot, obviously. But like those are one of the bigger things that comes as a, as a difference between the two. But overall, Davion Mitchell is one of those guys that his stock has to be rising with the way that he's played in the last, you know, basically five games overall, Uh, 16 points against Wisconsin, 14 points against Villanova, 12 points against Arkansas. Uh, He had six six assists in that game, had eight assists in the game against Wisconsin, had the double-double, obviously, in the game against Houston with 12 and 11, then had... 15, five and six with a block and a steal against Gonzaga in that big game. I mean, the biggest thing that maybe is hurting Davion Mitchell's stock overall is just the three point inconsistency, which is really interesting out of the mere fact that he was a 44% uh, three point shooter this year. But if you look at his, if you look at his shooting splits in the tournament, we've got 66.7%. Zero, zero, 50, 25. Like, it's just in a situation where he's not really shooting the three ball at a consistent rate. And obviously, as a lead guard in the NBA, that's going to be one of those things that becomes important. Now, I don't know if he becomes a lead number one for any team, but even as a two guard coming off the bench, yes, you can run an offense, but that puts you in a situation where you're typically going to be very limited offensively. And what that's going to put him at is really a situation where the shooting could be the swing skill for who he could become in the NBA. 
because the high end is maybe a less athletic Donovan Mitchell with a little bit more defensive acumen as opposed to maybe offensive potential. The other end of it could easily be like a more athletic, similar decision-making, but maybe better on the defensive end, but not as good of a three-point shooter, Devontae Graham. Out of that, and, and that was the kind of, you know, high-level facilitator that couldn't really create for himself, but he shot the three-ball very well. That was one of the biggest things for him in Kansas. Davion Mitchell would be a high-volume facilitator, a high-IQ uh, defensive guy as opposed to a three-point shooter that would be able to get most of his minutes guarding one through threes. So I think he's a guy that's shooting up the board, but um, where do you feel about it? I, I know that that could be very debatable on whether or not he's shooting up the board or maybe if he is, is he shooting up by that much? There's no question about this one. I think he rises. I think he's undoubtedly a lottery pick after the tournament performances that he had. He is an explosive guard, a great defender who was able to shut down some of the best scorers in the tournament like Quentin Grimes and Corey Kispert, just to name a few. He can score off the dribble. He can also be one of the best 3D guards in the draft. And like I said, you know, I'm hearing a lot of comparisons to Donovan Mitchell. Davion Mitchell has the potential to have a Donovan Mitchell-esque NBA career. I mean, you also mentioned the comparisons between him and Devontae Graham. I'm hearing comparisons between him and Malcolm Brogdon. I think this guy has top 10 potential regardless. I think that he's he's made a case through the tournament to be a top 10 draft pick. And with the comparisons to Donovan Mitchell, with the comparisons to Malcolm Brogdon, with the comparisons to Devontae Graham, he could be one of the best players in the league. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for him, there's two things that are honestly working at his detriment and it's just the three-point inconsistency, something that the numbers on the season will tell you should even themselves out. But the performance in the tournament is one of those things that will make you kind of wonder just how consistent he can be long-term. Also, this is the lowest his his free throw percentage has been over the course of his uh, career in college. 64.1%. So that's one of those things that might be a little bit of a, a bit of an iffy move as well in terms of whether or not that'll be able to translate to the NBA three. The other thing is just the age. I think he's 21, 22 years old. That's been one of those things that's been brought up a lot with another guy that we're going to end up talking about Corey Kispert, a guy in Chris Duarte um, out of Oregon, a guy like his teammate, Jared Butler, for example, that's going to be one of those things where our guys are going to wrap our teams going to rather swing on the potential of guys like Jalen Johnson, uh, Keon Johnson, uh, Moses Moody, Zaire Williams. Are they going to want to swing more on guys who have that kind of potential because they're 18, 19 years old that still have an ability to maybe hit another gear that they didn't touch in college? Or is Davion Mitchell, who's a little bit more of a sure thing, who's shown you a lot, but still has that one swing skill that could be the difference between him being a a borderline all-star slash all-NBA player. Is that something that, you know what I mean, is worth, you know, really putting within debate? And I think that's something that we're going to talk about with Corey Kispert because if we look at it from the overall picture, 
he's had one of the best seasons in college basketball this year. But if we look at the tournament, it's debatable. Jalen, I just want to get your thoughts on where Corey Kispert stands. Does he rise or fall? Oh, man. So this one is the one that's tough because um, shout out to Aaron and Andrew from All Facts Media. They got on my case about this off camera about Corey Kispert not being a guy who might get taken in the top 10. I still think that's debatable, but I don't think that his tournament performances helped him in that regard. Um, 18.6 points per game, five rebounds, 1.8 assists per game. That was his year. Career highs across the board. One of the bigger things that's going to be a big testament to him is 87.8% from the free throw line. That's projectable. Career high, 44% from the three-point line on nearly seven attempts. That's that's translatable. 52.9% on 12, nearly 12 and a half attempts per game. That's something that I think could be very translatable as well. One of my biggest gripes, and it's one of those things that I've been hearing a lot more, is that we all have the understanding that Corey Kisper is undeniably the best shooter in the draft. My issue with him over these last couple of games is that he has not played like what shooters in the NBA need to play like. And I'm not saying the volume of threes he's taken. I'm not even talking about the fact that he hasn't shot very well from three. It's the fact that he be, that you can see it physically. This is more of a tape thing. He almost physically becomes disinterested on the offensive end of the ball, end of the, uh, the court when his shot is not falling, which is a bad habit to have as a shooter because what is the overall well-renowned phrase about three-point shooters and shooters in general? Shooters gonna shoot and they're just as good as your last make. And that that one of the bigger things is forgetting all the misses, pushing them to the back of your mind and continuing to take those shots. Corey Gisbert has not really shown that much throughout the tournament and he's shown a lot more of the passive aggressiveness on the offensive end when his shot is not falling. Now, if we want to get more specific about it in terms of his shot not going down, in the last five games, basically all of the tournament games that he played, four of eight in the first game, two of three, three of ten, two of eight, two of seven. I mean, he hasn't shot well from three, and if it weren't for Drew Timmy stepping up, I think that a lot of these games could have been significantly different, honestly, because Corey Kispert did not give us his A-level game in this tournament. If anything, I felt like he actually regressed and showed a lot more of his flaws. I think Corey Kispert's draft stock falls. He hasn't fallen out of the lottery, but I think he may be the last lottery pick. He didn't have the best tournament performances in some of the games, like the games against Baylor and USC, where he wasn't shooting efficiently from the field or from three. But we have to look at it from the whole season. And throughout the whole season, Kispert has been one of the best players in the country. Jalen, you mentioned that he has that his NBA comparison is Joe Harris. I feel like every team could use a Joe Harris, someone who can score a lot and shoot the ball efficiently from the field and from three. And in this case, every team could use a player like Kispert for the same reasons that teams could use a player like Joe Harris. So we can't judge off of what we saw just in the tournament. We have to look at the overall season. And at best, Kispert is a late lottery pick. At worst, I think about where he falls in terms of 
the late teens, early 20s. I think he falls somewhere in between 17 and 20. Ooh, that's that's a significant drop. And I think that should tell you everything about the kind of weight that maybe this tournament could have. Now, my question would be really, and this will be something that maybe we'll when we get to finally go in, you know, we're, we're doing a mock draft and a big board soon. Looking back at the tape, especially with his age being factored in as well, guys who also had pretty tough tournaments, Keon Johnson, Jaden Springer, um, Moses Moody to a lesser degree, guys that didn't participate in the tournament like Zaire Williams, uh, Jalen Johnson, um, those guys are going to be weighed next to him. Um, even a guy like James Booknight, for example, with the athletic upside that he has, that's going to be another guy who had a pretty rough tournament who's going to be weighed next to a guy like Corey Kispert. I think that you might have a potential point, but I think when you actually sit down and take a look at everything, potential versus surefire value is going to be one of the biggest conversation points in this NBA draft. Corey Kispert falls on the, on the, the former in terms of being a guy who is going to be a walk-in day one produce, producer. So the question would just simply be, is that going to be enough to be able to sway guys to want to pull the trigger and draft him? And I think that's going to be the biggest question going in, especially considering that scouts have to look at the entire season, not just the tournament or not just the actual regular season. Before we close out the episode, let's let's give our final thoughts on the NCAA season because this has been a great season of college basketball. Jalen, any final thoughts on the season? So, I mean, it's really simple, bro. Great year. Really fun time being able to cover this season from start to finish. This is the first NCAA season from start to finish that the Hoop Talk has been able to cover. Um, I think we learned a lot about our format, about a lot of different things that we are interested in talking about when it comes to the NCAA tournament. We've had guys come on here to help us talk about the tournament itself. We did a full-blown breakdown of all the conferences, something that we might actually do in the preseason coming next season and uh, maybe get to some more conferences since there was a lot of them that we didn't get to that we would love to talk about. Um it was a great year overall, man. And I'm glad that it ended the way it did in terms of being able to see the matchup that everybody kind of was anticipating. Um, a, a bit anticlimactic to say the least, but we had a lot of moments along the way. Um, it's going to be really fun to look at all these draft prospects moving forward, because I think that's going to be really interesting as well with the way this year went. It was just that exciting and polarizing of a season. I mean, it's college basketball, bro. It couldn't have gotten any better than this. And considering it was during COVID times where we could we could have potentially missed out on this again, this is as good as it gets. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of your points. I'm very appreciative that there was a college basketball season. I'm grateful that there was a March Madness tournament this year because it made me realize why I love watching basketball. Not just college basketball, just watching basketball overall. The upsets, the history that was made in the tournament, and we also got to see a lot of these NBA caliber prospects go up against some of the best teams in the tournament. We also got to see players who may have a chance to be drafted in the NBA because of the games that they had. Blay Bayheim from Syracuse, Max Abmus from Oral Roberts, Johnny Juzang, who wasn't even considered in draft conversations before the season started. 
he definitely he he definitely has a place in the NBA draft now after this NBA or after this NCAA tournament. I'm grateful that we were able to cover the season from start to finish and break down conferences to tell our listeners about each team, who are players to watch out for. I was looking forward to another season, Jalen. Hopefully it's going to be as exciting as this year. Yeah, bro. And I think one of the biggest the biggest things that that's going to be taken into account this season is something that we're probably going to talk about, you know, throughout the offseason is the transfer portal, where guys decide to go, who decides to declare, what kind of teams guys are, uh, what kind of guys teams are bringing back. Next year is going to be really interesting. Now that we've finally zeroed in on college basketball from an analytics standpoint and from an analysis standpoint as podcasters, as aside from just simply fans, we're going to be looking at the game from a completely different perspective going into next year. And that means that there's a lot of great college content on the way. I just can't wait to start talking about all of it. And it's funny because the season just ended and we're already looking towards next year. Definitely. And this is a good transition to our question of the day for our fans. What did you enjoy most about the college basketball season? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.